Mana 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 this is social discasting welcome to social discasting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves my name is brandon aka brandon i hope you're well my guest is a returning one having previously been on episode 84 a whopping 558 days ago or one year six months and 11 days ago if you prefer that he works on film and tv productions including richard jewel red notice loki and most recently the in-between and high expectations. Please welcome back Al Miller. <laughs> Whoa, I had a weird thing there. Please welcome back Al, Mir- Al Mirabella. Welcome. Good God. Hello. That's me. Al Mirabella. <laughs> yeah, I don't think those combinations of uh, letters are... I-, I guess I don't have a very dexterous tongue because that really confused my brain twice in a row. So It's okay. It's because I'm exotic. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a mystery to it. I, from from the the far off distant land of Pensacola, Florida is where my people are from. So I've been in Pensacola. I think uh, my parents had a timeshare there for a time, so I've been there several summers at the very least when I was a wee boy. You're in Arkansas, right? Yes. So Pensacola is like you know it's a nice beach town, but it is only like a nice vacation town slash beach town to people from the south. Like if you go to like California, and you mention Pensacola, that's like not on anybody's radar. But if you're like in Tennessee, and you're like, oh, Pensacola, they're like, Pensacola, that's where we used to go every summer. Used to go down there and, and do some catfishing down there while we're, while we're in, the, in the spot, in the zone. It's better than the alternative, which is no beach. Mm. And, and fair enough, I suppose. Yeah, yeah I mean, I we... So, I'll continue. I didn't realize I was a beach person until I did not have a beach to go to. And then I was like, oh, well, as soon as I get back home, as soon as I go to Pensacola, like it doesn't matter what time of year it is or what the weather is or anything. I'm like, well, well I got to go to the beach because I got to get my beach time in. Do they have, uh, I'm now realizing my, I'm really bad at geography and picturing it in my head without, you know, the, the aid of a map, but you're in the Atlanta area, presumably. Is that correct, right? I am in Atlanta, which is in like Atlanta. mid-north Georgia. Okay. So I was going to say, are there? does Georgia have beaches? Georgia does touch the coast, and there are beaches. Like there's like Tybee Island, and if you're out in like Savannah, there's like there is coastal Georgia, mm-hmm. but um, nobody wants to go to the beach on the east coast. There's not nice beaches over there. Bad water, bad sand. Actually, uh, sand is just dirt. So. Okay, fair enough. I always associate that general area, the non-Florida part of it, in terms of beaches, I think of like Cocoa Beach and things like that, or like North Carolina and South Carolina. But for, yeah, for some reason, I never associated, and I guess I understand why now, Georgia with beaches at all. So that's why I was, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming they had something, but maybe, uh, maybe not terribly impressive ones. I have friends who will uh, say like, oh, you know, we're going to the beach this weekend. You, you guys should come. We're going to go, you know, make the, the three-hour drive out to the beach. And it'll be to drive to Savannah to go to the beach, to go to the East Coast beach. And if you're going to drive three hours to the beach, just drive five hours and go to Florida. That's how <laughs> yeah. I feel about it. Yeah, fair enough. I, I You know, it's a weird thing. Savannah, Georgia specifically, I've never been, but I have I very much... Not maybe mythologize is a strong word, but for some reason I have like a picture of what Savannah, Georgia is without ever having been there. And I think a lot of that is dictated by just singularly just the movie uh, In the Garden of Good and Evil. For some reason that really stuck with me and I just picture like, you know, moss on trees everywhere in like a genteel area for some reason. Oh my God, that is exactly, I have not seen... In the Garden of Good and Evil, but I can tell you that Savannah is a very mossy place. It's uh, covered in Spanish moss. And my girlfriend loves Spanish moss. She's like, too. we should take. So we went. I there's a a fella who lives in Savannah. Uh, he's an artist called Panhandle Slim, and I bought one of his paintings offline. But I had to drive to Savannah to pick it up locally. It was a nice drive, but there's so much Spanish moss there. She was like, we should take some Spanish moss while we're here. Take it home. <laughs> and Spanish moss is just like a little city for spiders. I was like, absolutely not. I will not let you put Spanish moss in my car. I don't want it in my home. I'm sorry I have to put my foot down about 
this one particular piece of agriculture. It's, and I could see that. It, it is a weird thing where like Spanish moss is incredibly evocative for me as a thing because I just always associate it, well, obviously with Savannah, Georgia, but, but also primarily like Louisiana. When my dad, born and raised in New Orleans, so we would go there a fair amount when I was a kid in the summers. And in a weird way, like that was the, once I saw the Spanish moss, that was like the line of demarcation for like, oh, we're in Georgia. Like for some reason, that's what I associated with. It was kind of the place marker for us being near where we're supposed to be going. So I, it's, it's a very, yeah, it's a weirdly like nostalgic thing for me, Spanish moss. I um I just went to New Orleans for the first time in my adult life. I went to this is to to tell you how long it has been since I have been to New Orleans. The last time I went to New Orleans, I went to Six Flags, which is not a thing that has existed in New Orleans for like more than 15 years now. Wow. Um but I went to New Orleans and similar to how you feel about Savannah, I think I have I have like created this mythology around New Orleans and what New Orleans is. And it's another like staple part of the South. I think Pensacola is sort of a staple part of the South. Obviously, in a bigger way, New Orleans is a staple part of the South. Even like Little Rock is a staple of the South in a certain way. It, it brings a certain, you know, it, it rounds out the, the South as its own little semi-nation or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, New Orleans is like... It's like the Las Vegas of, of the South and East Coast, right? It's like a place you go to sin and hurt yourself and to be <laughs> debaucherous. Yeah. And I had kind of had this idea of what that was like going into it. And I was like, well, kind of got to temper my expectations. It's probably not going to live up to that. Let me tell you, <laughs> New Orleans, New Orleans is... Someone should wipe New Orleans off the face of the planet. And I and I say that in a positive way, you know? It's not from a lack um, of trying. <laughs> it's like you you like show up to 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 your hotel in New Orleans and there's a person outside who is uh like trying to like sell you uppers before you can walk in the door and there's just like people just doing cocaine in the streets and then like you walk into the French Quarter and everything smells like puke and you wonder why. And then you look and you realize it's because everything's covered in puke. And I had a great time. It's like I felt so right. I had to throw away a pair of uh, like a, a shirt and some pants that I wore when I was there. Um, that I took about right. sort of yeah. like and I, t- I took like the, the, the B team because I knew I was like, well, it's going to get really dirty. It could be a sloppy weekend. And then looking at them i was like i don't want to put these back in my backpack and get my backpack dirty before i get on the plane i'm just going to throw them in the trash Um, that's how you know you had a good weekend yeah it's a it is a place where it might not meet your expectations but it's going to get close to them or it might just meet them in a way you didn't anticipate it is a like delightfully debaucherous it's a great place it is so unto itself i mean really the state of louisiana is unto itself i I love it. I love it very much. Uh, I It was a very, like, it felt ritualistic being there. Especially, I was there for a bachelor party. And it felt like I, it felt like for my friend who was getting married, um, it was like an essential part of his experience. He wanted to have his bachelor party in New Orleans, not because he was a big party guy, because he's not really a big party guy. But it was like, he had to go get that party out of him like there has to be a place for that right to just like exercise that demon out of you and yeah. uh, i will say that there was so much going on and it felt very ritualistic to be there it was sort of like a like a mind-bending psychedelic experience to be in that place to be like this is a part of what ma- like man in the greater sense does it's like it's, this has been happening this happened in sodom and gomorrah 2000 years ago and yeah. now it happens right here right now that's yeah yeah that's that seems like a fair summation it's it's interesting when you think about it with like that place and the the, the air of it you know as compared to like a las vegas which is like truly just pure superficiality and, and artifice and yeah, it's and it's just it's a it's, capitalistic it's, approach in Las Vegas, and I'm sure there is a capitalism operating in New Orleans, but it feels more ancient. Well, there's an actual, at least there's an actual history to it, as opposed to 
you know, Vegas doesn't have much of a history, and it's all truly manufactured because it's out in a desert that, and where people, you know, in theory shouldn't necessarily live. And and having been there in summer, I can attest to that because it was like 120 degrees, and it was hellacious, truly hellacious. But uh, as you're walking just in between, you know, giant monoliths of casinos, it's weird. I have never been to Las Vegas, and I think I can safely say I wouldn't like it if I went. I, I would have liked it like five years ago. Um, I have turned into something different. I think the pandemic made me an introvert, and I, I keep thinking, well, that's going to change. I'll switch back. No, I have like had a, I've had a like a, a switch flipped in my brain and now I just don't want to be out and about. I'm going to a big, uh, there is a three-day music festival that happens in Atlanta called Shaky Knees and I'm going to one day of Shaky Knees tomorrow because my friend is coming into town and we want to see King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. And the bad. reason that I'm going to this is because two years ago we bought tickets and then COVID shut it down. And now they're back, and it's like we're like fulfilling this promise we made to ourselves two years ago that we were going to go do. And I love him, and I love King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and his wife is coming, and my girlfriend's going to be there, and it's going to be like a really nice thing, a really nice event. And all I can think about is how bad I just don't want to go to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get that. Like, I just want to stay at home, and like, if he wanted to come and wanted to spend eight hours on the couch watching like hit monkey with me which is the show i'm watching right now i'd be like yeah that'd be a great that's 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 our party and i probably would get more out of it i you know the funny thing is that well i was gonna bring up shaking knees uh because i saw you tweet about it today and i was curious who all you were gonna see outside of king gizzard and the lizard wizard but you know on a, obviously on, a, on an infinitely smaller scale but to speak to that i I was thinking, like, do I want to go see a movie today? And I decided no, because the anxiety of it was just not worth it to me. And that's just seeing a movie in a theater, probably by myself, because it would be on a, on a Friday afternoon. So, I, look, I think it's going to be one of those things where it's going to be an amazing experience that you have tomorrow, and it's going to be great, but there might be a lot of unfortunate dread leading up to it, just once you do it. Can advice. I ask, what yeah. movie were you thinking about going to see today? I was going to go see The Northman, which I really quite mm. want to see. Because um, I, I just, uh, Robert Eggers, I, I love his first two movies, you know, uh, The Witch and The Lighthouse. So I really do want to see it. But it also doesn't seem like, I think it would be a great theater experience, but it's not maybe theatrical enough to where like I can get by with not seeing it in the theater. From the trailer and from everything I have heard from people, my 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 take from the outside has been that the Northman looks like a movie from twenty years ago from today, just like that like epic historical fiction kind of feel of that movie feels like from the time of like Spartacus Blood in the Sand or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I too, uh, am excited to see it eventually whenever that happens. You know, I, the funny thing is that I, at one point I was like, maybe I'll go see, and this was like three, four weeks ago or something. And I was like, maybe I'll go see the Batman. And then I saw that, you know, they announced, Hey, it's going to be out April 19th or whatever on HBO max. And I was like, Oh, well, there we go. Don't have to go see that in the theater. Like just the relief of like, not the, the anxiety and dread of just, going out i mean i'm not like uh i'm not agoraphobic or anything but i'm definitely more uh way more of a homebody in light of everything and just the fear of you know all i know is what i'm doing to not get covid and to take the proper precautions i just don't know what anybody else is doing and so that can kind of get in my head and i just don't know what to do with that yeah you know not to uh i i don't like to reinforce the stereotype that like People from the South aren't progressive and don't uh, don't go get COVID tests and don't want to get vaccines or whatever. But um, I'm aware of the fact that I know a lot of people who aren't vaccinated and who don't want to like take any sort of proper precautions. And then when the restrictions kind of went down, those were the people who were like, great. 
great. I will, I'm going to go out a lot. I'm going to go out a lot and be around a lot of other people or whatever. Yeah. And not to say that I don't also go out and I'm not around people and I do. And I, since the last time we have talked, I wear my, I wear my mask a lot less, but I am required to wear it at work. And I also don't want to get my show shut down. So I wear it when I'm in any kind of big event or whatever. Um, but I, I will occasionally see a post online from like my West Coast friends or my like New York friends or Chicago friends or whatever. And it'll be like, oh, everybody still wears a mask where you're at. That's very interesting. That's like a contentious fight. And as far as the South goes, Atlanta was definitely a long holdout. But I and I have I have seen a lot more apathy about it probably within the last six weeks to two months which feels like the years in the, the way time that moves now. Yeah, oh, for sure. I, I can't imagine. Um, but also, like I, like, I completely understand somebody having, you know, as they put it, COVID fatigue. I completely get it. But at this point, I feel like I'm running a marathon, and the marathon is involves is, is not me running but just not getting COVID. And so far, I'm continuing the marathon, and I don't, really want to stop it's a really bad analogy because i don't really want to do a marathon anyway but i also just don't want to get covid and i'm not looking to get it now so part of me is like you know it's like i don't want to let my defenses down now and then get the, the damn thing and for and you just don't know what case is going to be it could be asymptomatic and you have nothing or it could just be that it fucking sucks and you have long-term covid and you're never the same i just don't know what that's going to be and it feels a little bit like russian roulette and that's not a very fun game to me Mm. I a lot of people who work outside of my field hear the fact that I test uh, very frequently and they're like, oh, I just can't even imagine just getting that swab done all the time. That must be miserable. And it's like, well, you just get used to it. It's fine. You know, I don't think about it at all. It's like mildly inconvenient the way that the physical discomfort associated with a COVID test is about it is akin to like um checking your blood sugar like there's mm. just a moment where you're like oh, i don't want to do that but then it's over and you're like oh it's fine i'm not gonna not going to go into a diabetic coma today or whatever i do like the peace of mind i like knowing that i am on a schedule to get tested and basically in atlanta almost everybody i know works in the film industry so i'm in like a bubble in and of itself where if i get tested once a week or more and uh, my girlfriend gets tested three times a week or more. And I mean, it depends on our show, but I mean, I, I have done up to three and she has done up to five days a week. Wow. But I, I honestly, I have, uh, within the greater Atlanta film community started to see people drop like flies recently. There are right. a lot of people getting COVID and, uh, really screwing over entire departments and productions. Really? Yeah. That's man. That's an, mm. That's infuriating. Just the you know the idea. It's especially when you're working in close quarters with anybody. You know whether it's an office job or otherwise. But it's certainly when it's a production where there is a massive ripple effect and a lot of implications and complications that can come with you know a, a selfish choice or maybe just maybe not knowing, but but certainly seemingly based on what you're saying, not uh, getting maybe not getting the test required to indicate that you have a COVID. I don't know. I'm projecting a lot, I guess, on whatever well, that know, scenario like is. In, everybody is getting tested, and everybody getting tested, you know very quickly if you have COVID because we're getting PCR tests, and um, a lot of folks are also getting daily rapid tests as well. And this is not just speaking to the production that I'm on, but just sure. productions in general in Atlanta, and I'm sure that this is the same on the West Coast. So when somebody gets it, you know very quickly. And because of contact tracing, um, if somebody really close to me in my department were to get COVID, who I work with regularly, I'd get pulled from work. I would go work from home or, you know, if you worked on set and couldn't work from home. If you didn't work a job that you could uh, work from home, you would just go home. And then everybody who is around you regularly will all get rapid tests and then they'll all do either a PCR test every day or a rapid test every day. And they'll do that until they have a sufficient number of negatives to be able to say, oh, yeah, um, that's 
you're everybody's fine and clear and good to go back to work because we do end up when you when you're testing 200 people for covid three times a week you invariably get false positives yeah and then you don't want to just try, shut an entire show down for the day because you're like oh my god somebody on set has covid or whatever has uh you know last time we talked was uh, around uh, mid-october 2020 has <clears throat> excuse me we talked about i believe covid protocols to some extent and how that worked but has it have they kind of fine-tuned that system like i mean with the sheer volume of doing it and probably i, I would presume like productions being about probably back up to speed with what they were probably pre-covid have they fig- kind of figured it out fine-tuned the machine and it kind of works pretty effectively at this point yeah i definitely think so i also think that you know when it started when things st- shows started to come back, there was the b- being very overprotective, which was the right move. But when you're overprotective and over testing and over um, overacting on a possible false positive, you end up costing a lot of people their their rates and causing shows to shut down maybe prematurely from like a false positive. I know, I know of. Uh, at least one show that got a false positive onset shut down for the day and then they gave that person a uh, PCR test and a, a rapid test the next day and it was just a false positive and that cost that cost the show it didn't necessarily cost anybody their rates because most people have a guarantee but it cost uh, it cost the show however much it would cost in lost work for that day and in rentals and in the space that they were in. And so that was that was keeping shows from coming to Atlanta. It was keeping small shows because like a show like a, like a Marvel show, they can lose a day. That's fine. But if you're um, self-financing a movie that you're spending $750,000 of money that you raised on it and you miss a day, it's like, well, that all of a sudden you have to rewrite parts of the script because you've just lost tens of thousands of dollars out of your budget. Yeah. And that's what I don't want to happen because I appreciate, I, I really appreciate union work and I appreciate big union shows. Um, and I think that I think that people should be working union jobs that take care of their uh, employees. But even a small, like, tier one union show is uh, way more affected by excess COVID protocol. And in the same way, like, all of those tests that they're doing are not free. So when you're testing everybody five days a week, that's, you know, let's just say I've heard numbers between $75 and $100 a test for a PCR test. And you have a small production, 100 people on staff. If you decide that all those people need to be tested five days a week, that's $500 per person. That's, I mean, you know, it's like, what, like $10,000 per week just in the test and not in the people that you're hiring to, um, you know, manage the behind the scenes COVID actions or whatever. But I do think it has become a little more finely tuned. And because it was a new job, whenever... Um, things started happening. There wasn't a health and safety department, as it's called beforehand. There is now like an entire specialized group of people who have been spending the last two years basically coordinating and managing testing and health and safety protocols. So now you have a hopefully people who actually know what they're doing, where when I first started, they were just kind of like hired whoever to do that job based on whatever qualifications. I know somebody who was they hired to manage a health and safety department because they had a, quote, background in healthcare, But really, their background in healthcare was just that they drove an ambulance, which is, like, not enough to, like, manage a huge production's worth of people. Um, not to say they don't have healthcare care uh, knowledge, but they just don't understand how this business works, and it works very differently than a lot of other jobs and fields and industries. So there, were, it was a little bumpy, but it has smoothed out, and I appreciate it. I appreciate the COVID department. I know that there is a certain amount of apathy and distaste for the people on set. There will be, like, COVID PAs who are, like, walking around on set just, like, telling people, like, please pull your mask up over your nose or whatever. And everybody's like, oh, my God, these kids or whatever. Because it's always – it's that's, like, your first job now when you get in the industry. Oh, is um, it? Okay. Yeah. And used to – if you got in on a low level, you'd be like an office PA or a set PA or something like that. And now 
but it's hard to staff the COVID team because everybody knows that job's going to go away. So you get in, you like get staffed on a show in the COVID department. And then the first thing that you're trying to do is get out of the COVID department. A lot of those COVID PAs don't even make it through the show before they've gotten hired in another department because they'll like find out that somebody had to leave to go take care of their grandma or whatever. And they're just like, please take me, please take me in whatever other department. Because if I do this, I'm going to not have a career in two years, probably. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that, that, uh, yeah, based on what you said, yeah, it sounds like it would be particularly motivating towards upward mobility. But at the same time, if that's how, you know, the, the quote unquote average person breaks in, it's kind of all you got, probably. Yeah, it's, of I, knowing somebody. I, I appreciate that there is a way for somebody to get in now, too, that's a little bit less, you know, a guy who knows a guy. Because yeah. those are the kind of jobs, like, they're hard to find people to to take those positions because nobody really wants to do it. So those end up getting like posted to Facebook or Indeed or whatever sometimes. And um, I think that if you don't, if you're not in the circle uh, around people who can get you into the industry, which it is, it is a privilege to even be around people who work in the film industry in a way, because you, if you hang out with me IRL, you already are probably like at least middle class and at least have like a bachelor's degree just based on what I, the people I am around most of the time or whatever. And that's true of all people on film sets. And just to know that there's a way to like get in and not only to get in, but because there's so much incentive to get out of the COVID department, they uh, pay their PAs and their people a little bit more a really average rate for a PA in as a set PA or an office PA in Atlanta is like $750 a week. That's about what you get for 60 hours of work, $750 a week. Well, a COVID PA might make $950 a week or $1,000 a week just because they want somebody who's willing to move over and work a show in this department. It's what my roommate mm-hmm. did for a while. And uh, I was no longer a PA whenever we moved in together. I had kind of moved up in the world. And he was like, oh, you know, all the PAs make $1,100 a week. And I was like, no, no, there are definitely PAs who are making $600 a week. And uh, and certainly the lucky ones are making $900 a week. And you make that rate because you work the worst job on the entire film crew. What uh, what are you, are you a property coordinator now? or uh... I am. I am a property coordinator, but I am also a prop buyer. So What do those entail? Um, in the coordinating world, I manage production, like, uh, purchase orders and stuff for any kind of props. And I'm making sure my department is going well. And even as far as like making sure that my prop master is filling out her time card and making sure that we're, uh, getting a correct turnaround and everybody has gotten their 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 paperwork for the week or whatever and that's like the boring kind of lame part of my job um, but i'm also a prop buyer i kind of function in both of those roles and as a prop buyer i get a script i read the script and i buy and uh and commission the the hold on i know this word i use it all day every day i will buy and commission the production of props the uh, fabrication of props. Um, say, I can't say anything for my current show, but let me see if I can think of anything for my last show that I did. It's like, you know, we have a. I had a show where I had a really fancy hero prop was a was a gold chain with a medallion with somebody's dead dad on it. So wow. I facilitated like the photo shoot with the guy who was playing their dead dad, so that we could take that photo and. Uh, take it to a person who used AutoCAD to create a mold of it and then sending that off to to have it t- turned into gold and sent to a jeweler and uh, had a, a hero prop created and also making sure that we have backups of everything. And then going back a little bit to my job as a coordinator where I'm doing both of these things at the same time, I am, whereas my, my prop master is more concerned with the big picture of the show i'm the person who's like all right well tomorrow we need to make sure that somebody goes to the truck and gets 
all of the the burger the fake burgers because we have a big food scene tomorrow so you know like well i'll talk to my guys in our group chat or whatever and i'll be like somebody needs to go to the truck and get the burgers somebody needs to go to the truck and get the hot dogs things like that okay. um and i'm still new to the world of props i'm on my second show um though i have been trusted way more than i probably should um <laughs> My boss on the last show, she was like, I know you haven't worked in props, but we're going to sidestep the whole like uh, uh, prop production assistant and and prop assistant. And I, and I know that you have history as a coordinator, so um, I want you to coordinate. And I was like, well, I really want to get out of coordinating. It's not really the, the gig that I want to do. So if you teach me how to buy, I will come and do this job. And uh, so I've, I've been taking both of those reins and hopefully here soon I can I can move out of coordinating altogether. And I coordinating is a good job, and it's a very integral job, and it's an underappreciated job. But it is for somebody who is more more detail oriented and organized than I am. I do a good job at coordinating, but it is like fighting an uphill battle. People yeah. look at my systems. I have like, you know, I have my spreadsheets, and I have special notes and productivity apps, and I'm like very like everything is is tracked and in a place. And people will say, like, oh, you're really organized. I'm like, no, I have to do all of this because I'm not organized at all. And if I don't do this, yeah. I won't remember anything. Yeah, I have to overcompensate because I'm not naturally organized. So I have to go that much harder at it to undo my tendencies to not at all. So I completely understand that. Is it is it part of, like, wanting to get out of coordinating is to go into the more, for lack of a better word, like, creative side of it as opposed to the more, you know, like, type A regimented organized side of it? Yes, definitely. I, um, you know, being a, a prop buyer is a, it is a pragmatic job in that I have to know what would make a good prop. Mm -hmm. um, I have a PA right now who I had to send to the store to get some maple syrup for a scene. And she sent me some pictures of some maple syrup, which is the right thing to do. Send me the pictures and I'll pick the maple syrup out. But she sent me some pictures, but like none of them were just when you close your eyes and you think of somebody in a movie with maple syrup, I just picture a particular bottle of maple syrup. It has like a particular handle. It's probably red. And it's like just, it's going to have a red top on it. It The brand doesn't matter, but it's just like, I know what maple syrup looks like. Yeah. And you just kind of have that or you don't. But in, the, in, in another way, like I'll have a, this is something that's really general that I can say on my current show. Uh, there's a detonator that I need. Uh, or I needed, I needed a detonator to set off some fireworks in the background of something. But it was supposed to be kind of like a military scene. Um, so my boss, who doesn't really know anything about, she's very smart about a lot of things. She just doesn't have like, like C4 detonator in her periphery. This is not the kind of thing that she thinks about. And so she had some thoughts of what this detonator would look like. And I was like, all right. Well, I'm going to buy those things, but I'm also going to buy this other thing that I found because I know what a detonator, in my mind, just closing my eyes without looking it up on Amazon or whatever, whenever I was reading the script, I was like, this is the thing in my head. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find First off, you can't really buy detonators online. That's like uh, certainly if, if there is a list that gets you put on one. Yeah, fair um, enough. But uh, the thing that I found that had what I was thinking of in my head was a Nerf Claymore had like a, 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 a like a Nerf War Claymore had a, a particular fake detonator that came in the kit. And I had to buy like the $80 Nerf Claymore. And I didn't want the Claymore. I didn't want any of the darts that came in it. I just wanted this detonator. And uh, it came in and my boss looked at it and she was like, I just don't know. I just think it's something more like... The other detonator that she had was more like a like a James Bond villain, like red button detonator. And yeah. uh, we took them both on the day. We took them to the to the director, and he just had his pick. And I I uh, I kind of float in between being on set and off set, um, but I wasn't I wasn't there at the time. And she she was texting me about something else, but I knew the detonator thing had already happened. I was like, so. Uh, what detonator did they use? And she was like, oh, I didn't notice. And when she said that, I knew that they used my detonator. She totally <laughs> knew exactly what they, it was her job to know which one they used. So I, I uh, after afterwards, she came back and she was like, 
they used your detonator. They used the green one. And I was like, yeah, of course they used my detonator because that's <laughs> what it would be. And that's like, that is the, that is the more satisfying aspect of my job. And I do get to be, I get to be creative in a, in a different way. Um, have you seen Sonic the Hedgehog too? I've not, but I've heard good things actually. It is, it is fun. Um, a very minor spoiler. There is a scene where I, this may even be in the trailer where Dr. Robotnik makes a, a giant robot with his mind or whatever. And, um, and his little, his henchman stone doesn't know how to like do like the Voltron controlling of the robot from the inside. And he's like, you got to read the manual. Right. And, 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 uh, an insert later you see there is an insert of a manual and it's like oh the dr robotnik you know big evil robot manual or whatever but the manual is like looks like a like a sega game manual that would come in a in a sega um you know like game oh, with the system box yeah or whatever yeah like with the system perfect. and so that is not the that could have just been any kind of manual. It could have looked like an actual manual that somebody would have used for something. But that prop master and production team saw that as an opportunity to exercise a little bit of creativity and put an Easter egg in for the fans. And I see shit like that, and I'm like, that is fucking awesome. I love that. that I love stuff like that. Just because, like, you know, it. everything on a movie set, I mean, I'm not saying anything, obviously, quite obviously that you don't know, but it's like, it's all a choice. And that in particular, that was a choice. Somebody knew, they knew people would love it, especially something with such like a, a ravenous fan base like Sonic and something that's like dear to so many people who've grown up, quite literally grown up playing that game, myself included. And like little thing like that, it's like, oh, that's delightful. I really like that. Um, one of my favorite parts about, not necessarily about my job, but like working in property and working in props is that every different department that I've worked in, I've worked in art and I've worked in production and I've worked in props and I've just been around. I've, I've been, uh, I've worked with like the ADs on set and done stuff like that. But every, every different department and role you take on makes you watch movies in a different way. And the way that I now watch movies and TV shows thinking about props is the funnest way to watch movies I've ever done. I like watching a movie or watching a TV show and it's like, I mentioned this to my boss, who's been a prop master for like 15 years, and she's like, oh, yeah, once that starts to happen, you just ne- it never unhappens. You're just going to watch movies like that for the rest of your life, which is where like it'll like cut to an insert. You'll see somebody's face. You'll see their full body, and you'll like see their face and their like mannerisms, and then they'll start talking, but you don't need to look at their face anymore, so I automatically dart down to their hands to see what's happening in their hands. I'm like, all <laughs> right, what's in somebody's hands? And it's funny, I'll watch, I'll watch things and now I'm like, it's a good prop or it's a bad prop. I've started pointing it out to my girlfriend. She is a, uh, her name is Beth. She is a, uh, she is a base camp production assistant, uh, but she's 500 of her 600 days to becoming an assistant director. And so she, she has a lot of assistant director, um, tendencies and ideas and thoughts and she talked about a very type a job that's like very um it's the it is the you know it's the onset managerial position and just not not my strong suit at all so she watches things that way where she'll be like we watched the trailer for the new jackass movie and all i saw was a funny jackass movie and after she watched it she like we paused the tv after the trailer was over and was like that would be the most miserable movie to work on. She was like, can you believe like the, the AD went, whenever that bear was on set, do you know how many safety people had to be on set for that? You know, that would have been, <laughs> that would have been miserable to be working with the animal coordinator and have all of that. And it's like, that's just the way that she watches that. And I just think that my way of being like, what are people holding is way funner and way more interesting to think about it. Also, I, it, I find the, the people who work in props, it's not as much about, this is a very art department. The art department uh, includes set decorators and prop people and set designers, but it's all kind of under the umbrella of art. And the art department's really, your job is not, it's not even worrying about what's happening on screen. It is creating a believable and livable world and like making decisions and choices. A big thing whenever you start a show, you have to like call the network once you get a script. You have to be like, what year does this take place? 
And they're like, oh, it could be any year. You know, it's just a, it's a late 2000s. We don't want to give it a year. And you're like, no, you don't understand. I need to know what year it is so I know what the sticker on the license plate needs to say. You know? Yeah. So yeah, things like any that. little anachronisms, anachronistic elements too. And yeah. You know, anything that could stamp it in time, for better or worse, yeah, I would imagine. Any, you, anything you know, some, somebody could post on IMDb in the goof sections that caused me to lose my job, you know? Yeah, yeah, I didn't think about it, like, through that prism, but, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's all about attention to detail, mm-hmm. like you said, like, uh, in a way, like, it's it's a more creative version of being the coordinator, you know, you are being organized and logistical in a different way, but it's more of just, like, to your point, building a world as opposed to maybe maintaining a spreadsheet. Yeah, and and a good buyer or a good uh, a buyer can be anyone in, in props or set deck or any even like a good prop assistant or uh, on set dresser, the on set version of set decorators. Those people are like there is an amount of of like type A organizational spreadsheet mindedness that you have to be because there's just so much stuff going on and it's nice to be able to engage in both worlds and be able to i mean it's it's truly a never a dull moment kind of job um when you work on set a big part of working on set is that you're very very stressed out for like 20 minutes and then they like shoot the setup and then you have like 30 minutes where you're not really doing anything and you're looking at your phone looking at memes or whatever and it's not to say that that's not a very difficult, hard job because they work crazy long hours and they have to be out in whatever weather and be prepared for any possible situation. But there is just built into the job an amount of downtime while you're just waiting for the scene to get shot. And when you're working in like the world of uh, like art and design, there's so much stuff that needs to get done for the thing that you're shooting tomorrow that it's like, I get in at eight in the morning and uh, I'm working every moment that I am there until I leave at eight at night or whatever my hours would be for that particular day. It's kind of the thing that makes me think that I probably won't ever be able to get out of this field. Um, I would like to have a, you know, like a wife and kids one day, but this is probably not the right job for that. But I just know that any other job I've ever had, every job that I had besides this once I got out of college was like, they're just, it was not engaging and it was boring to be there. And yeah. don't get me wrong, working in film and TV is a miserable job that I would not wish on my worst enemy, but it's also, you know, a wonderful and amazing experience to get to do. I just, you know, when it's like, um, it's like tasting tasting the the fruit of the pixies or whatever and, and everything else tasting like sawdust after this <laughs> well i just imagine yeah it's so unto itself that that is a very double-edged sword you know like man it's it has a it can be probably like a when it's bad it can be a very specific type of misery but when it's great it can't be beat and nothing can compare to that so it's like you you either you know it's <laughs> it's probably like chasing the high of like skydiving or something that once you have that thrill it's like how do you how do you top that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I have thought too because I just know that it is not for for I'm not built for it. It's not a sustainable lifestyle. I know people who do it for like have done it for forty years, but I really don't know a lot of those people. Yeah. A lot of people will go and do like ten or fifteen years, and then they're like, "All right, I have got to go do something else, or um, I'm going to have a stroke." You know, like that that kind of mentality. But I know that for me personally, I like I used to work in healthcare. I used to work um, in home health, and I did like administrative work, and I was a courier at one point. But even on the shitty, boring days there, I knew it's like I am doing a job that kind of makes a difference and is helping people. So if I ever leave, I just feel like that's the one thing that I really feel is missing from what I do now. Even when I used to work in TV news, and even in TV news, like. I thought that was a public service that I was doing and keeping people informed. And when I was working in news too, um, there are a lot of people that who have never worked in local news that think that all journalists are just like out to make a buck and skew the world in their particular way or whatever. But 99% of local journalists just like want to make sure old people know that the Walmart's moving down the street. Like, you yeah. know... And um, they take it very seriously, and I appreciate being around people who are like that, who are not quite as big-headed about their job, because even the nicest 
people who are like high ups and above the line and even people like you know heaven forbid my prop master they're <laughs> like kind of big-headed assholes you know even yeah. when they deserve to be they are that thing yeah no i can see that is it um i was curious too by the way that uh do you have a direct you know are you looking to go further into the direction of prop master i mean in that general area or further up you know the the hierarchy of where you are now is there something you're looking toward or you're just like just taking it day to day and like oh this is interesting let's do this for now when I first got into the business, I was working in production, which is, you know, to to be in that more type A administrative world. That was yeah. just my foot in the door. And um, I, I moved over into working in art when I worked on Loki, and I really liked working in art. But then in the middle of working on Loki, the pandemic shut everything down and everything shut down. So when I, I was out of work for like six months, I just had to kind of take whatever job I got offered after that. And that's had kind of got me back into the world of production. And because I was, you know, I will say part of it is, uh, part of it is that I was good at the job and part of it was like a good attitude and the fact that I'm a normal looking white guy, but I got kind of pushed up in that pretty quickly. I was the first person that I knew in my like class of people who went in and started PAing at the same time as I did. I was the first person to like get bumped up and move up into more senior positions and roles or whatever. And that was difficult because I was making a lot more money than a PA made, but I just, just did not like doing the job at all. And it actually took until doing, I did a, I did a lifetime Christmas movie and I was, um, when you working for like a, a lifetime or Hallmark kind of show, you typically take on a more senior role because the people who are more senior don't want to take jobs like that. Yeah. So I did a, I did a higher role. I was a production coordinator, which is like a junior producer on that show. And I saw what that world looked like. And I was making really good money, more money than I'd ever made in my life. And it was the most miserable experience of my life. And my girlfriend was like, I think that you probably need to do something different. And I was like, I think that you're right. Um, so I took a severe pay cut to get back into the world of art and design and props. And I know that I know that I like working in art. I like working um, with the production designer and working with graphic designers and set decorators and prop masters. But I don't really know. I'm a I'm a, a, a feather in the wind and I'm following what opportunity presents itself. I think that that is the smartest thing to do because you can always kind of move down a little bit um, and you can move around once you're kind of in the world. I am, I spend all day working with set decorators and prop people and set designers and art directors and they see my work ethic and they know that I'm good at my job and I know that just at the end of this show, somebody is going to tell me three weeks before we finish Hey, um, I got this new show that's starting. I'm going on to Doom Patrol. Do you want to come be the art coordinator or do you want to come be the sad deck buyer? Or do you want to, you know, maybe eventually I would like to, I, I, I'm learning a little bit of set design and I'm learning art direction in the long term. I think I really like both of those jobs, but I really like all of the jobs. I, I just like working in this world. So I'm not going to say like, well, I'm never going to be a prop master yeah. or I'm never going to be a, a set decorator. Um, I will I will do any job that meets my rate where I'm working with a bunch of people that I, I like and enjoy being around and who have similar values to me. That makes sense. It's cool also just to you saying about that, you know, three weeks left and somebody going to offer you something in terms of the next job. And like I like the idea of just to kind of the idea of a traveling band of creative people going from project to project and just seeing where that takes you. I think that's really fun. That's really what it's like. Um, the show that I'm working on right now, I am working for stars and stars has a couple of different shows that shoot in Atlanta, but they kind of like the producers who work locally in Atlanta, who make stars projects, they kind of have their like team and the people who work on, um, like there's a, a star show called Pussy Valley and a lot of the people who are on my current show 
all worked on Pussy Valley together or Pea Valley, um, I think is what it actually ended up being called. But they'll like do one season of one show and then they'll like wrap on a Friday. And then like on Monday for the next six months, they're going to be working on the next season of the next show. And then they'll wrap and then they'll work on the next six months of the next show or whatever. I can't do that. I don't like TV nearly as much as I like working in features. Um, features are a lot less time, which means that you don't get paid for quite as long. But also if you're working like 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week on a, like a high pressure job, like I hit like month two and I'm like, I got it. I need like a two weeks off, three yeah. weeks off or whatever. Well, so. yeah, I, I, yeah, I'd imagine it's harder to control, you know, the degree at what point in the production you hit a wall and I, I, I know speaking for myself, when I do hit a wall, I just, yeah, I got to reset. <laughs> I have, I have to reset. Otherwise it really is kind of square peg round holing it. And you know, whatever the case may be, I'll do what I need to do and it'll get done, but it can be a really tasking, miserable experience. In the world of film and TV too, because you know that six months from now you're going to be working on a different project, there's very little accountability and people are just complete assholes because they know like they're not going to see you again in six months. That's fine. Um, and what they don't realize is that you do end up working with them again because it's a small world or whatever. But um, you never know when you get on a new show, like is everybody here going to be cool? I, I was on a show um, in the middle of last year and I got, I got called to do a BET TV show that was filming in Atlanta. And, um, I did my first day. I was like, Oh, I got to get out of here. I have absolutely got to get out of here. And a week later I got a call for something else. And normally I would not leave a show in the middle, but I had to get out of there. I was like, I cannot work with these people for the next five months. I, I will not do it. I will not survive. I will quit and get a job at Sonic. Um, and, uh, so, you know, it's nice to have that option, but I, it's also like a long show. One of the benefits of TV is like, I've now worked with everybody I'm working with for like three months. We have like another three-ish months to go, three or four months. And I have had the opportunity to be like, oh, I really like these people. I want to go out to get a drink with them. Or I want to, you know, like, well, we're going to like eat our lunch together today. Or we're going to like, you know, we're watching the same TV show. So we actually have something to talk about. Whereas when you work on a feature, by the time you like have that camaraderie, you're like, all right, well, there's four days left in the show. I'll see you on the next one when we work together briefly again in two years. Yeah. So. No, I can see that. I mean, it's a, yeah, it reminds me just anytime you hear like even actors like talking about being on a set that, you know, it really is a family and, you know, obviously some sets can be bad, some can be good, but they talk about like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to keep in touch. And then they just never keep in touch because it's, it's again, that traveling band aspect, I, I imagine, and it's like on on to the next gig, and you know that is nice though. Granted, again, it could be where, like you said, you you realize early on, oh, we have six months of this. This is hell. But when it's great, it's probably great. Yeah, and I I've had really really good experiences with people. A really good experience I had when I worked on Richard Jewell. Um, you know. Clint Eastwood has been directing for so long and is such a, he'd like, you know, like as an, a tour director and somebody who is like, his movies are, are, are thought highly of even the ones that are bad. People like think pretty highly of. Um, so he ends up kind of working with the same people over and over again, like his production company. And so there is a little bit less room to move up in a production company like that, his uh, production company in Malpaso. Yeah. But everybody who works for him, because you have to do a really good job to work with him, because why would he hire you if he didn't? They're all really nice, kind people who are all really good at their job. And he's also the kind of director who likes to work a 10-hour day. And so he doesn't want to go for 14 or 15 hours like some directors just trying to get that perfect shot. And that was like, I mean... That was like, that truly was like a family. And those people that I worked with then, I keep up with. And I've I've gotten calls to go work with them again. But, um, you know, I am not going to drive to Arizona to work as a local on a show or whatever. You know? yeah. So I'm, I'm sure that eventually something will pan out there. But I've also worked the jobs like 
the big budget high end shows that I it's like a this is like a dream to work on this show and then you get there and every nobody else thinks it's a dream except for you and then you realize it's a nightmare and then you realize that you're wearing your underwear and that you're going to be late to class you know yeah. like have yeah. had those experiences too it's nerve-wracking i um in a i'm in a reddit thread called or a reddit subreddit called film industry la which is really just kind of the film industry sub for the entire country somebody posted a question in it that was like do you ever i've been doing this for a year do you ever stop getting nervous on the first day of shows and there were people that were like makeup artists for 20 years that were like no i'm shit my pants scared every night the night before i start a new job it's exact working in the film industry is the only job that you you get out of school and you still have first day jitters for the rest of your life wow it's i mean that's probably a good problem to have in the sense that you know obviously it uh you know otherwise indifference would be like you're not invested there you you know there is something to lose so that's nice as much as Obviously, it sucks to feel that way ever. Yeah, and uh, and also, if I ever did decide to get out and I just wanted to like go get a job doing something else, I interview for jobs so often and I have to get a new job so often that I'm no longer stressed out at the idea of going to like do an interview for a job. That's good because that yeah. I mean that is a skill unto itself. So getting the reps in, I mean, going for both, you know, your current industry that you're in and anything after that i mean that's going to be easy by comparison mm. the uh yeah i was just thinking randomly about well not randomly we were talking about it but i was just like the fact that and we talked about this i think a little bit last time too but that just clint eastwood instead of saying action he says go which i always enjoy because it's i think that harkens back to uh what when he was on the set of westerns, they would if they would say action, that it would scare the horses and it would have to reset everything. So instead, they just quietly say go and then let people act. Is great. I liked it a lot. I also here's another. This is like one of the whenever you see uh, like a meta movie or whatever, and you see um, a, a director on screen saying action in a movie or TV show. Um, big anachronism because generally most of the time the director is not the person who says action it's the first assistant director so put that put that in your in your little pocket to to tell people the next time that you watch a movie where a director says action i'll take that i like little stuff like that yeah i didn't realize that actually that's yeah and that is like a some directors do say action some directors will only want to say action on very specific takes like if something's like timed out to music i was working on a on a big show with like a guy who was a former music video director and he 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 like timed it it was like everything was kind of not timed out to music specifically but was all very rhythmic so he would always have a take where he would want to do his action because he wanted to sync it to the music that he was playing that he would maybe want to throw in after the fact in editing oh okay so it's yeah when it's more possibly like more technically complicated as opposed to just your, you know, your more everyday regular thing. When it's more specialized, they might want to have more control over that. Well, yes, and and the director does not have a walkie-talkie to tell everybody that there's a rolling action. Because you might be, you know, you're going to have people on a movie set that are like uh, a quarter mile away down the street making sure that nobody's walking into the back of the shot or whatever and so if you just yell action they're not going to know that but a director doesn't want to carry around a walkie-talkie and a first ad does so he'll ye- he'll yell action with an open walkie so that everybody else hears even if they're too far away oh we're calling action little the, things the power the power of that yeah i mean it makes sense too because like i guess you're you know, you're a director, you're ostensibly a CEO of a company with, depending on obviously the size, uh, quite a number of people beneath you, you know, underneath you in the hierarchy of things and so many departments and so many umbrellas and sub-umbrellas. Yeah, that, that's, there's a large ripple effect from that action. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, we are now at the 59-minute mark. So we're coming up upon the hour in which I promised. Uh, what all? Do you, do you have anything you want to point people toward? Well, for, well, before I say that, thank you for doing this again. I love this. 
the last one was the first one and last one so easy like this is such a natural conversation i you know that's the that's best case scenario for the show so thank of you of course i'm always here thank you for having me brandon um if you if you want to find me on the internet, you can type in Howdy Strangers pretty much wherever, and you can find me. Um, you can listen to my podcast, Howdy Strangers, which is on an indefinite hiatus because I work too much. But they're all out there. A lot of good episodes. I've talked to Brandon. I know what he does. He's a he's a he's a good man. He lives in Arkansas. Um, and also, you know, uh, watch. Let me. I'm just gonna shout some things. Um, watch. Uh, on the come up when it comes out on Paramount Plus. Watch the in between on Paramount Plus. Um, uh, if you really want to uh, just uh, really experience something, I'm not going to say good or bad. Um, watch the holiday fix up on the on Lifetime. You know. Yeah. Um, and then if I have to say something nice to watch, uh, watch season one of Heels on Stars, so that you can then watch season two of Heels on Stars. That's that was gonna be my guess. That's interesting. I like that show. I enjoyed season one quite a bit, so that's exciting. Yeah, um, you're the first person I've ever met who's watched it. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It's a it lot is of a fun. Good show. Yeah, it's really well done and very lived in, and I, I think it's I like it. Um, yeah. Okay. Again, we're at the hour mark. Thank you again for doing this. Very much yeah, enjoyed it. Thank you as for always. having me. I've enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, of course. Um, thank you all for listening. Please stay safe. Please be kind to yourself, be kind to others, lead with empathy, and, you know, get vaccinated and or uh, boosted if you're not. Thank you again. Bye. Bye.